Pamela, with romantic comedies, is falling in love really supposed to be funny? <laughs> well, falling in love seldom is funny. Now, it's hopefully fun, but I think what romantic comedies and the funny look at the situations can do for us is it can make it easier for us to take a look at what happens and how frightened we sometimes get of the changes that are happening when we start falling in love and the resistance that comes from within and often from without, you know, from friends and family who know, what are you doing with that person? And maybe society's strictures against who you're falling in love with. So to take a comedic look at some of those situations can be helpful because then you can go, oh, okay, other people have faced this kind of situation. Here are some solutions. Maybe we can work that out too. Well, I know in looking at your book, uh, Romantic Comedies, you used one of the case studies of, I think, my big fat Greek wedding. And it sounds like we're talking a lot of the similar things where the, out, the family was so strong that they only wanted, you know, they were very possessive and also too, um, they had her sort of as this one type of person and kind of gave her the impression she couldn't have a, another type that, that was the beauty of the film, that two opposites came together. Yes, it's a very good example of that. And I think it's also a, a good example when we say falling in love, note the word falling, okay? You're going from one position as the daughter who always does it this way, as the member of the family who, this is the way we do it. You're falling into a different realm. And I've often wondered though why we don't like slide into love, okay? It's not a horizontal movement or why we don't rise into love. But of course, if it's well done, you do rise up. You do have that, that uplifting of your spirit. But falling in love, you're falling off that level where you've been. You're going to a different realm. It's a different world. And so I think the beauty of romantic comedies is that it can make it a little bit more palatable to take a look at the things that happen to us. Now, why do people love romantic comedies? And I realize not everybody does, but we all have a soft spot for at least one. That's, that's true. We all, we all do have a soft spot for at least one. Now, I will admit when the publishers came and we were talking about a new book, Ken Lee said, oh, you know, there's this study that's been done and uh, we think that maybe that would make a good book. Well, what was it? He said, well, couples who watch romantic comedies together versus the other group of couples who went to couples therapy, an amazing thing happened. The stay together rate was higher for those who watched comedies together and talked about them than it was for those who went to couples therapy. Now, I still think couples therapy is a good idea, but when, until you get to that point, romantic comedies. Now you say, well, does everybody like romantic comedies? Frankly, I didn't that much when Ken and I were talking about this. And he said, well, we think you'd be a good person to write this book. I said, uh, you know I do mythology and military stuff, right, and adventure? He goes, no, 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 you, you'll do a good job with it. Well, thanks to he and Michael Weesey, of Michael Weesey Productions. It was a group effort on constructing how the chapters would be laid out and how we'd approach each film. So me, a person who was not that much of a rom-com fan, I actually became one through the process of writing this book. 
Well, we want to talk to you about structure and uh, archetypes and even a crossover of mythology versus mm -hmm. some of the romantic comedy themes. Um, why do people set out to write romantic comedies? Why, why do you feel that it's, there's a lot of people in Hollywood pitching these scripts? I think the reason that a genre comes into a trend or a fad is often the success of a film or a TV show in that particular genre. Example being zombie stories. I mean for years when we go to the Great American Pitch Fest and you look at what people are looking for, it was zombie this, zombie that, vampire, horror, thriller, give me some more zombies. For the last couple of years, no one's asking for zombies. Okay, so genres cycle in and out of popularity. But I think romantic comedies tend to be consistent because the people who write them have had some kind of an experience that they want to share with the world, or maybe, okay, so I have this theory, and I think facts will prove me out. Winners write history, losers write about love because the losers aren't doing anything. They lost in love. So they're the ones who write about love and idealize it and how they think it should be. So I think a lot of the people who write romantic comedies are those who are trying to create a reality that they could inhabit. Interesting. Yeah. Hmm. And then sometimes it's because, well, gee, that's what the market is looking for because some writers do write towards the market. Although we're always told, you'll get a much better story if you write it from here or from here. Rather than, oh yeah, it's gonna be popular, it's gonna make a billion dollars. Love is at the center of so many people's lives, whether it's they've got plenty or they don't. And so a romantic comedy can be a way of dealing with that for yourself, I think. And also sometimes either warning or encouraging other people about falling in love. So that, and this is no pun intended, but always a bridesmaid, never a bride kind of a feeling. And so they feel like they have to somehow fulfill that on paper and through a film. I think so. And the the film 27 Dresses is a very good example of that. Someone who was always a bridesmaid was always helping other people, but she never had her own love. And so through the course of that story, it's about how she comes to realize that, you know, she does deserve love. And she's been helping all these other people. Maybe it's time to look after herself. So again, who writes romantic comedies? I had one writer friend who was a very good writer, and he wrote a romantic comedy, uh, was starting it when he was dating this girl and he was really in love, and then they broke up. And oh my goodness, that script changed, and it turned into a horror film. Oh, no. And I said, now, you, you are aware of what's going on here, aren't you? So how one feels about love at the moment is certainly going to dictate the kind of story that you write. And I think we would all be well served by having more stories that do put forth, as the romantic comedies in the book do, joy, dignity, passion, and integrity when relating to love. 
let's say a writer decides they would like to write a romantic comedy and it's for not just the market but for their own catharsis or need to tell stories. So what should they know before they even put one word down on the page about writing romantic comedies? I think in writing romantic comedies, one of the most important things to remember is that it's a three-part trip. Now, not necessarily three acts, but there are three things that need to happen. This is the, this is the genre. Boy meets girl, boy loses girl, boy gets girl back. You gotta have all that. Now, or it can be, you know, girl meets boy, girl loses boy, girl meets girl, boy meets whatever. But you need to have that, that initial spark that we see them feeling for each other. And we go, yeah, there's something there, even if it's they're both fighting it, right? You know, ah, you're not my type. Oh, oh, no, never go with someone like you. But you know, oh yeah, sparks are flying. And then there is that split and it looks like it's over. And then we spend quite some time watching one of them, at least, try to figure out how to get the other person back. So it's that struggle, if you will, to regain or to claim what you saw in that first part of the film. And then the third part is the re-engaging and seeing how that works. Now, in romantic dramas, the third part might not end well. It might be a tragedy, and they don't get together. But even then, you want to feel that you know what they have lost. Now, in a romantic comedy, we want them to get back together. Uh, this echoes, interestingly enough, the myth of Orpheus and Eurydice, that three parts of girl meets boy, girl loses boy, girl gets boy back, is an echo of the ancient Greek myth about Orpheus and Eurydice. They're madly in love, it's their wedding day, and she goes off to pick some flowers and gets bitten by a poisonous snake, dies, goes to Hades. Orpheus, who was the first rock star, he was a, a musician, and they said he was so good and so magnetic and charismatic that he'd, he'd be walking down the lane playing music and the trees would uproot themselves and the rocks would grow legs to follow after him because his music was so compelling. So he loses his wife. His beloved is dead and gone. He stops playing. He stops singing. And the world around him starts to go gray, to lose its color because of lost love. So you've had the first part, they're together, they're happy, they're ecstatic, then the separation. And in this instance of the myth, it's very dark. And the whole world suffers because of their loss. In a romantic comedy, it usually isn't that big of an effect, but a lot of people do suffer when somebody breaks up. You know, whether it's the friend who goes, I'm so tired of hearing the same story, please go out with me tonight and meet some more people or the parents who are saying, oh, dear, you'll find more, there's more fish in the sea. You know, I don't want fish, I want him. So that separation then reflects that myth. And in the mythic story, Orpheus says, I, I gotta get her back. And uh, the goddess of love, Aphrodite says, 
hang on here just a minute. She goes and talks to Hades, the king of the underworld, and they have a little thing together. And uh, she's, oh, come on. The kids are in love. Things aren't going well up there. Let them get back together. And Hades says, okay, fine. But he can't talk to her and he can't look at her. But if he can get her to follow him up back into the upper world, then yeah, okay, she can be alive again. And the story's very sad and it's spawned a number of wonderful operas and, and movies. He goes into the underworld, he finds his love. So romantic comedy, right? You search out the beloved. You're willing to try anything. And, but there are often strings attached. And that's where it can get so fun in that, that part two of a romantic comedy. What are the barriers? What are the hoops you have to go through? What are the rings of fire to get back that person that you love, right? Well, Orpheus gets down to the underworld and he sees her Adiche. He starts playing and he spots her from a distance because he's not supposed to look at her. But he says, oh, that's her. So he starts walking back up and playing and singing. And she hears him and starts to follow. But here's where you also find a great echo for your romantic comedy scripts. On the way up, she keeps saying to him, Orpheus, is it you? Won't you look at me? What is it? Tell me something. Tell me it's you. Tell me you love me. But he can't. He can't or it'll ruin everything. Now in some of the stories, he just can't resist and his heart is breaking. So he turns around and looks at her and holds out his hand. And even though he's made it over the threshold of the underworld, she hasn't, and she gets zapped back down, and they're separated forever. Now, that's a tragedy, but in a romantic comedy, we're going to do the other version. And in that version, Aphrodite goes back to Hades, and she says, oh, seriously? Come on. I mean, they were that close. And the kids are in love, and you know what love does, don't you? <laughs> and so Hades goes, yeah, okay, fine, okay, fine, take her. So Orpheus and Eurydice get reunited. So we have that tragedy as the format, the mythic pattern for romantic comedies. And this is sort of a loaded question, but why are there so many bad romantic comedies? And then maybe it's just my own opinion. What are they doing wrong? The criteria that I used to select the films to go into this book were four. The stories had to embody and promote at least one, hopefully more, of these four qualities, joy, dignity, passion, and integrity. A lot of romantic comedies do not. Therefore, they are maybe entertaining, but they're shallow. And there's nothing wrong with fluff entertainment. That's perfectly fine. But the romantic comedies that move us, that, that raise our spirits, that, that thrill our hearts, are the ones that embody in some fashion, in some of the characters, joy, dignity, passion, or integrity. And those are the ones we remember. Those are the classics. And here again, I think if, if you are looking to do a romantic comedy that many people will relate to and many people will remember and want to see over and over again, get one of those four qualities in there, at least one, with at least some of your main characters. Once again, 
nothing wrong with having, you know, fluff. Fluff's okay. But I like, and you see that people continue to like, the romantic comedies that really deal with the kind of love that uplifts. And not just uh, romantic, but also we have familial. We've got uh, some best friend romances in the book. And at age differences, you know, young love, older love, age differences love. So all kinds of love, but they need to embody one of those four qualities to really be, let's say, to have the romantic in all capital letters. How would someone know that a script that they've written is maybe shallow versus having one or two or more of those four qualities? That's an excellent question because it implies that we all have the ability to, A, see our own work with a clear eye, and most of us don't. And that's why it's good to have you know, your friends or readers or other people give you feedback, whether you're in a writing group or you're working with you know, some other people that are, that are doing that for you and with you. But I would say, take a look at does anybody in your story actually make a positive change in their personality? I think there should always be some element of sacrifice. And remember that the word sacrifice means to make sacred. So that could mean elevating someone's opinion of themselves by saying, you're an amazing dancer. Has no one ever told you that before? Or, wow, those things that you've been doing for the kids you've been helping. That's incredible. Some moment of recognition that lifts somebody up to a higher plane. If you've got that in your story, then it's not going to be shallow. Okay? I see. Okay. So let's say, oh, sorry, Sleepless what? in Seattle. Like if we took one of the, the scripts. Mm -hmm. at, uh, at what point did, did Tom Hanks' character, maybe, or even Meg Ryan, did they get lifted up to a higher plane? Sleepless in Seattle is such a popular film. So many people really, really seem to identify with it and, and like it so much. I think part of that is because you have two people, one who's brokenhearted and one who's dissatisfied with her fiance and, and their relationship. Oh, and then a third person, the little boy who wants a new mommy. Right. Okay. So you've got three people who are wounded or troubled. And where you see them starting to rise up is when Meg Ryan hears on the radio Tom Hanks' voice and talking about his wife and the magic they had between them, and she realizes, that's what I want. So that's her first step upwards. And then she starts looking at her relationship. Is there enough there to justify a marriage? Wow, I want that kind of passion I heard in that man's voice. And then, so she sacrifices, a sure thing, to go after a voice on a radio? Seriously? Okay. Tom Hanks then has to sacrifice his clinging to his grief, which is a very natural thing that people tend to do. But he has to get over himself. Now, not get over the loss, but get over himself. So you see both of them. 
So you see both of them consciously making a choice to leave where they were and to take a step up. And then the little boy is so great, you know, he, what does he sacrifice? Oh, nothing. He's just out there manipulating and pulling the strings. But it's all for a good cause. Something you said in the last question reminds me of the missed opportunities scenario. And I know when I was a little girl, there was a section in our newspaper where I grew up about missed opportunities. I'll never forget this one post was about a man that saw some woman and he described her and he said, we, we shared a moment and if that's you, can you please call me? And I've oh. never forgotten that post. And I mean, this was pre-Craigslist, you know, I know all that exists now, but why are we so enthralled with the idea of missed opportunity? A missed opportunity is a factor of idealism because that opportunity is not fact. It's an opportunity. It's a possibility. And onto that, we can cast all of our dreams. And I think most of us have had those moments, you know, the glance across a room, you're crossing a street, you look at somebody, they look at you and you go, yeah. And then you both walk <laughs> on and you think, should I just go stand on that street corner forever and wait for them to come by again? And some people do. But I think the thing about a missed opportunity most at its core, the reason that it, it reaches us so deeply is it offers that question, what if? And we could see, might that have been the perfection that deep in our hearts we are all striving for? So do most romantic comedies feature the missed opportunity or the, the sort of, even if it's just a friend at a wedding that they see across the table that they say hello to, isn't that sort of the core because of the what if? Yes, the missed opportunity can be the storyline of an entire film or the main storyline of it. For instance, in Four Weddings and a Funeral, the Hugh Grant character ha definitely has a missed opportunity through line. And fortunately, he resolves it and he and Andy McDowell get together again. <laughs> um, but within the three-part structure of a romantic comedy, that's the, that's the sad part about, and the tense part about that second section. It, yeah, you saw what it could be, and now it's gone? Because one of you had to move, or somebody got in the way, or someone else's you know, impositions of propriety are keeping you apart. And so that missed opportunity, which is a vessel, if you will, for idealism and perfection, really bothers us and we are driven to pursue what might be a perfect situation and now it's a romantic comedy and they always stop when the people get together right <laughs> so we, we don't have to get into the part about dissolution and domesticity and, and all that stuff but we get to keep that illusion of perfection and that idealism in a romantic comedy, it seems like each character, each sort of partner of this dance is missing something in their lives. And they see at some point that that other person is going to basically cure them of that. Why do we, why do we resonate with that? And why is that such a common theme? <laughs> 
There's another wonderful Greek myth that says that originally humans were both male and female together and we had four legs and four arms and two heads and we were joined. But with all those limbs, humans were able to start climbing up Mount Olympus and were able to start challenging the gods. And the gods said, oh, no, that'll never do. And so they tore humans apart and male and female were separated. And since then, it is the nature of our yearning to try to reunite into the one form. So that's how a mythology set it up. What we are trying to do in romance is to find that missing part of ourselves. What I think is interesting is that in some instances, people are trying to find that thing that will complement them because they don't have it. And then there are those instances where somebody says, oh, you've got that so much more than I do. I'm going to look a whole lot better than you by comparison. You know, if I'm cynical, but you're more cynical, that's going to make me look like the good guy. So uh, some of the romantic comedies have that sort of a, a mechanism in it. But I think basically what most of us are looking for in our romantic situations is a completion. What we see in our romantic relationships is often said to be a reflection of our relationship with our higher spiritual selves or with the higher energies or with the cosmos, that we, we connect to life through each other, that we connect to the one life by relating closely to one person. And so the alchemy of love can actually truly lift us up and that that is what a lot of us are looking for, even if we're not conscious of it. But we are looking for that, that, that bliss, that um, nirvana within our love relationships. And you may have heard some version of this where people say, we kissed and the world disappeared and we became gods. You go, oh yes, please, that's wonderful. And uh, one of my favorite authors, Lawrence Durrell, British author, author of the uh, wonderful Alexandria Quartet, which is all about love. And one of his characters makes a note and says, um, in loving Justine, I was loving all women because she stood for the female. And so I think that's what we do too. Even if we don't realize it, we just go, oh, I love you. We're also loving the essence of love. Why so often opposites attract? Why is it sort of the, um, the uh, hero worshiper or shy admirer and the, uh, you know, sort of, um, I don't know if you want to say type A sort of hero. I mean, I'm thinking of, let's say, Jerry Maguire. Yes. Okay. Yes. Which film I absolutely love. Uh -huh. um, but, but that's a common scenario, whether it's one is the male, one is the female, you know, that you can kind of switch who's sort of the hero worshiper. But why do we love that scenario so much? I think we have to go back to evolutionary biology and evolutionary psychology to truly answer that. In small groups of people, you do not want to have too much interbreeding because it's not healthy, so you need to stir up the gene pool. And so there's a phrase, the brother or the other. You're going to get a better immune system in your offspring if you're not mating with your relatives.
if you go for the other, that which is different. So you take that on up to modern times, and we're still being influenced by that. We still see the other, the person who is different from us, as more of a potential mate. A lot of that's just our biology psychology from, you know, 200,000 years still working on us. But I also think it's part of the, the wonderful magnetism of passion and of sex, regardless of what gender the body is, to have the positive pole and the negative pole. That's when you get magnetism. You get two positive poles together, what happens? Nothing, they repel each other, right? <laughs> but you get positive and negative together, and then you get sparks, then you get the magnetic pull. So I think that part of that opposites attract is built into human nature that is trying to produce the best offspring. And part of it also is just our sense of adventure. Let's take Annie Hall. So you have Woody Allen's character who's kind of self-effacing, he's down on himself. And then Diane Keaton who's a breath of fresh air, she's in a great mood, she, you know, very open to life. Why does that dynamic work? Well, I would counter and say it didn't actually work because they broke up. And she, in spite of her seeming self-confidence, also had some problems with her own self-worth and what she wanted and what she thought she should want. But yes, on the surface, they're opposites. And they, and they attract, and it's fun, and that's one of the most fun parts about that romantic comedy. But if you look at it again, I think you'll see that they're a whole lot more alike at heart than they are different. I was surprised at that when I went back and watched it, you know, with an analytical eye for the book. At the beginning of a romantic comedy, is it best that the two leads hate each other or intensely dislike each other? Does that make us more, you know, if, if, it, if it's too easy going, well, I mean, that's boring in some sense. Why do we, why are we intrigued by the two, you know, whether it's the coworkers or, you know, whatever, <laughs> just, you know, sort of the college friend that always sort of made fun of you or something like that. What, why mm -hmm. is that something that we're intrigued by? I think it goes back again to your question about opposites attracting. And you're, you're not going to get any sparks if you agree all the time. It's just not going to be interesting. You know, give me somebody who challenges me. Also, I, I have this thing I call uh, cheetah love. And little baby cheetahs, when they're learning how to hunt, you know, the mom takes them out and shows them how to pounce and how to grab prey and how to eat it. If you walk into where they are, and the little baby cheetahs are just sitting around. Maybe it's not quite time to go hunting yet, but they're gonna be going soon. You lay down a big chunk of bloody raw meat in front of them, they'll just look at it. They don't recognize it as lunch unless it's running away. A lot of us are the same way about romance. We love the chase, and we don't show any interest if it's not running away. So it's part of, part of some people's human nature that they like the chase. They want to conquer something. They feel that if I didn't have to pay a price for it, it must not be worth it. And that's a hard thing when people then do get together and the chase is over. 
it's often difficult then to keep the romance going if that's been a major part of the relationship at the beginning. So is it a good idea to start people at the beginning of a rom-com at disparate sides of something? Absolutely, absolutely. Because part of the fun of a rom-com is the chase. And then they get separated. And then, okay, now how are they gonna get back together? We know what's gonna happen. We just don't know how. And that's the fun of rom-coms. Yes, it's a predictable genre. Absolutely, that's why we watch it. Because we know it's gonna end happily or bittersweet maybe. But we want to see how the chase goes. What tricks do they use to win each other back? Or what sacrifices do they have to make to endear themselves again to the person that they realize they love? Let's take something where maybe it's not someone who's chasing the, the playboy, but I'm thinking of the movie Green Card. You had mentioned Andy McDowell earlier uh -huh. and Gerard Depardieu, where they're both supposed to go in to, to be married and they have to pretend that they know each other. Uh -huh. So those types of scenarios where it's not really that anybody's totally at odds, because I don't think, if I remember correctly, that they were. It was just that they were put into this situation. And so it's this weird thing where they end up falling for one another accidentally kind of thing. I don't know what that, that storyline is, but I've, I've seen it before, that sort of accidental discovery of one another where it wasn't intended. Yes, you see that also in It Happened One Night. And you've got a reporter and a rich girl, and you know he's trying to get a story. She's trying to get back with her fiancé, who she's only engaged to to make her dad mad because her billionaire dad is over-controlling. And so these two people come together with a specific goal, which is to get her back to her fiance and for uh, the story, you know, the reporter to get the story. But along the way then, they have to pretend like they're married. And once they do that, then the accident of pretending as if sets off even more sparks. And that indeed is a good trope for romantic comedies where people are thrown together and wouldn't have even thought that they'd like each other. But once they step into a different role with each other, and the whole pretending to be married or pretending to be together is a very good one. I think we see that in real life. Okay, next time you're at the grocery store, look at the tabloids, look at those magazines. What are they all about? actors and actresses who were playing at being in love and fell in love. How often do you see that happening? The point of it is when you start acting as if you often make it so. And it's a, it's a wonderful device for romantic comedies. Now another instance where you may find people acting as if and then falling in love is when you're writing with somebody and you're building these characters, you're building this situation, you're building the romance, and you're doing it there together. You know, many romances have started over, oh, I've got a great idea for a screenplay, let's write it together. Okay. And you'll hear anybody who's ever done this before or who knows what can happen say, yeah, right, you're just writing a screenplay together. Uh-huh. Well, we know how that goes. So, once again, you put two people together in a situation where they're creating an illusion. They often start to fall into it 
and to live it. So be very careful who you're writing your rom-coms with. How much sex should a screenwriter put into a romantic comedy screenplay? From what I have seen of the ones that I looked at and selected and the ones I did not select for the book, I would say not much. Now, they can be having sex, but you probably don't want to see very much of it because it's more about the emotions a romantic comedy is. And it's more about the yearning, it's about the barriers between the people, and certainly, yeah, it's, there's going to be sex, but it, it can start opening up so many other doors of discussion and emotion, and it can also shift the feel of your story hmm. if you start putting a lot of sex into it. So that's interesting. <clears throat> I think the way that sex can shift the feel of a romantic comedy is sex is not that funny. It's more ideally intense. It's, it's passionate. Now can you have fun in sex? Absolutely. But in a romantic comedy we're talking about yearning and we're talking about desire. We're not so much talking about fulfillment on the screen. The fulfillment comes after the end of the movie, okay? So by putting a lot of sex into the film, I think you run the risk of diluting the romance and the comedy. Now this is not at all to say that sex isn't where it's going, because yeah, but um, but I think you have to keep in mind the tone of the film and that sex can take us into many, many other deeper emotional levels. Do you want to do that? Or do you want to keep it more on the, the yearning, idealistic, fun, the search part of the story? Now, a film where the sex actually is important in the romantic comedy is in Moonstruck. And there's this moment, not long after Nicolas Cage and Cher have met, she's engaged to his brother, the brother's gone back to Sicily for a family visit, says, talk my younger brother into coming to the wedding. So she goes <laughs> to meet the younger brother and oh my gosh, sparks fly. And he has this wonderful speech, something to the effect of, I don't care if I burn in hell. I don't care if you burn in hell. I want you now. We should be together. And he picks her up and takes her upstairs to his bedroom and they have wild, mad, passionate sex. Okay. So in Moonstruck, the passionate sex that they have starts to affect everybody else in the story because everyone else has to start realizing that they don't have that kind of passion and they want it. So that's an instance where sex really makes a difference and is appropriate for that story. How important is the first kiss in a romantic comedy? <laughs> it is maybe the most important moment, followed closely by 
the one towards the end where the two people realize and admit to each other their love for each other. But that first kiss, wow, that's, that's amazing. That's, that's when you're standing on the threshold of paradise. And that's when you know whether or not it's going to work. Because if that kiss does not transport your characters, does not turn on all the lights and all the bells and whistles and the fireworks and all that people talk about in poetry and literature for thousands and thousands of years, if that's not there, there's no story. There's no story. So building up to the first kiss, you need to have that tension, that push-pull, so that when you get there and the positive and the negative come together, sparks do fly. Thinking of pretty woman, so there's the Im implication of sex. Uh -huh. There's definitely the, you know, the sort of the agreement, the business arrangement. Uh -huh. but, but I'm trying to remember, does that actually happen until they actually have the first kiss and actually feel something for one another. That's when it happens. Okay. Is at that first kiss. Right. Yes. Now, I think they've been feeling uh, comradeship. They've been feeling admiration. They've been having fun. They've been finding that they do agree on some things and not others. And so there is an affinity. There's definitely an affinity. And you're right. They presumably have been having sex. And she's a pro. So, okay. You figure it's got to be pretty good. But that moment of actually kissing is when the magic really starts to happen. And that also, now remember, she was a professional escort. There is a reason why among people who are sex workers, there's no kissing allowed. Because that creates a, let's say, an energetic, electrical, etheric, esoteric connection between people that really does something. It can change everything. It seems like, too, with those two characters, once they got out of their roles, because his role of, was of the, here, I'm going to pay you, and you're kind of beneath me, and I'm, I'm this prestigious businessman, and she's like, oh, who do you think you are? And I've seen the guys like you, you're a dime a dozen. But once they got out of those identities and mm -hmm. they became real, that's when it seemed like the real kiss and the real sort of relationship happened because they stopped being their element, sort of. Yeah, that's mm -hmm. a good point. When they just became themselves and not the masks and not the costumes. Oh, I like yeah. that. I like that. The mask, and yeah. There's a wonderful line in Jerry Maguire before they have sex the first time. And he says, you know, sex changes everything. And she says, Oh, I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> and what I love, too, is the sister. And I want to talk about that. The sister in Jerry Maguire and the wonderful scene where she's having her women's group. And he comes in and you can just tell he, it, there's a few women in the crowd that maybe look at him with endearing, endearing eyes, but there are just daggers pointed his way. And just the, the Jiminy Cricket friend, either the, the one that's either trying to talk them out of it or the one that's trying to talk them into the relationship. I, I, I want to talk about that role of the, the third person that sort of either tries to bring them together or separate them. When I first started selecting films for the book, Ken Lee, publisher, said, you have to include Trainwreck. And I went, 
train wreck, I wouldn't even go see that. I said, oh, why would I want? No, this is about people's relationships getting better. You don't want to see train wreck. He said, go see train wreck. I could not believe it. It's really good and it has in it the qualities of joy and dignity and passion and integrity. I was so surprised. Mm. Now, one of the reasons it does is because the Jiminy Cricket character, the best friend, is LeBron James. Okay, <laughs> that works. Mm -hmm. And he is best friends with Bill Hader and he sees something in Amy Schumer. He sees what she can be and he convinces the two of them to get back together and to admit their feelings for each other. So that's a wonderful instance of that, a, a different kind of love triangle that you've pointed out, where you've got the lovers and then that third person who helps them see what it is that they have or what they could have. Let's say when the third person is actually trying to prevent them from being together. Because mm -hmm. it's like if you take Pretty Woman, and I forget his name, but. Uh, you know George Costanza's character on Seinfeld, the one that, that's his business partner, and 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 he's kind of this negative force, mm -hmm. and 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 sort of antagonizing them. So that third person as the one that's trying to prevent them from being together. Yes, you need the third person, either helping them because they're not wanting to get together, or as you described, trying to keep them apart. You need that for dramatic tension. And also, we need the secondary characters to help tell us things about the main characters. So they can make those statements, you know, when you say, oh, well, I can't have, the, I can't have him saying that. He'd never say that about himself. Well, give the line to his friend. Or give the line to her friend who says, oh, you, have you no idea what this guy's like? So they, the third character, yes, is very, very important in any script. All of the secondary characters need somehow to be showing us something about the main characters or they don't need to be there. Now, whether it's they are people that the main characters do something to or with or for, but they are there to service the main characters in the storytelling. Are romantic comedies driven by plot or character? As a genre that has three parts, the plot's just there. You know, you, you get together, you get apart, and then you get back together. So I don't think it's so much plot that drives it as it is character. That's where we find our interest, is in the people and how diverse are they and how opposite are they or where are their similarities? What is it that took them apart? and how will they possibly get back together and who's helping them do that and who's against them doing that. So it's more about character, I think, in a romantic comedy because it's a genre and it has its tropes and it has its steps and if those aren't happening, then you don't have a romantic comedy. So character is, I think, the most important thing and that's what you should be focusing on. And let's talk about the character archetypes because you have, as I was saying earlier, sort of the hero worshiper. You have the sort of the type A ambitious that doesn't have time for a relationship. Um, you might have sort of the hot girl that no guy is sort of good enough for or similar with the guy. And then you have sort of the shy, you know, what are some of the archetypes that we typically see in romantic comedies, either as a friend or as the protagonist? 
some of the typical archetypes. And uh, in the book, I did have a there's a whole section in each movie about the lover types. And indeed, a lot of what you just mentioned, there's the cynical person. Now that's always a real good one. Somebody who's been burned and disappointed in love. So the cynic is a wonderful archetype. And I like that definition that a cynic is just a wounded romantic. So seeing that character change and go through a character arc can be very satisfying to us. Also, the person who doesn't even realize they need love, the clueless. Now, it's different from being a cynic, but the clueless person is just, oh, no, everything's fine. Okay. Maybe I'm in a loveless relationship, but, you know, it's convenient. It works. So they need to be waked up. So they're the archetype of the person who needs to be awakened. That just kind of, what? Wow. Oh. And then you've got another good one is uh, the bossy person who's always right and always in charge or always wants to be anyway. And then the person who, and I think this is so well done in Down With Love, where you've got Ewan McGregor is the, the type A, confident, always in charge, you know, and he's, a, he's running the show. And all, of course, all the women love him and he's got to, you know, Many, 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 many girlfriends. And then you have uh, Renee Zellweger, who is the formerly mousy secretary, who, I love this, and your writers, I think, will all just roll their eyes. She says, well, you weren't paying any attention to me, and so I decided I was just going to go off, and I was going to write a book, and so I did. And then it became a bestseller, international. And then I, said, and I went to see it with some writers, and we all went, Oh, is that how that's supposed to work, right? You just write something and it becomes an instant international bestseller. Okay, so she was the person who was waking up. Now, she was waking herself up, but bringing the two of them together made a really dynamic uh, energy exchange in that film, Down With Love. So the, the various archetypes, you can go from the, uh, the disappointed in love to the still grieving in Must Love Dogs. Christopher Plummer has a wonderful line. He's a father who's a widower. And uh, he says, no, I know I've had the love of my life and there'll never ever be anyone to take her place. But I'm just out there tap dancing as fast as I can, having some fun and just hoping I won't notice all the time what I've lost. And it's very sad, but it's also very hopeful. So many, many character types can play a part in a romantic comedy. And by choosing different types than what you would think, you can make a much more interesting story. Is there an antagonist or a dark side to romantic comedies? Hmm. An antagonist or a dark side? I think in romantic comedies, the antagonist is either within or usually just without but not big. Okay, we take three levels of, of opposition. There's internal, and then there's opposition from those around you, family, society, culture. And then on a bigger level of stories, there's the opposition from the big outside, you know, bureaucracies, uh, aliens, 
you know, tsunamis. But in a romantic comedy, you want antagonists and opposition just at those two levels, the close two levels. It's a, this is a small story. We're not taking on the world. We're not trying to overthrow kingdoms. So your opposition can be an, another person or a bunch of people, family, society, culture, sometimes religion, but usually not because it can be problems in trying to have a comedy to get into you know, those deeper philosophical questions. But so often the main antagonist is within one's own self. Take, for instance, my best friend's wedding. Julia Roberts' main antagonist was herself and what she thought she should have and how she thought it should be. And that was enough opposition to carry that whole film because there was no one else against her. Now, the situation was against her because the guy was engaged and he was getting married, but nobody was coming against her in particular. She was doing it all to herself. In my big fat Greek wedding, you had both those levels. The insecurity and then the family saying, oh, well, no, you got to marry a nice Greek boy and be Greek like you're a Greek person. Be a Greek person. So two levels for um, antagonists and opposition in a romantic comedy. And you said earlier that before starting this book, you weren't a huge fan of romantic comedies. But what films did you actually enjoy of that genre? Well, I did have my favorites already. And certainly, Love Actually is my favorite because it's got so many different love stories in it of so many different types. And it's so well crafted. Every writer should watch and deconstruct Love Actually to see how you can create and sustain character arcs, many of them, over the course of a film and have what, seven, eight, ten storylines going on? And they all work together and they're all interconnected. And it's, it's brilliant. It's brilliant writing and filmmaking. And the stories and the characters are so endearing. So Love Actually, I, I do like Down With Love. And Mamma Mia, because it's so much fun to sing to. Seriously, <laughs> can you watch Mamma Mia and not sing? No, you can't. <laughs> Can we talk about what a screenwriter should know about the confessional moment in writing a romantic comedy? Is it a crisis? Is it where they break down, they've been beaten down, they just have to get this off their chest? Or how does that work? Yes, typically it is uh, something has cracked. And when we talked earlier about the opposition being internal, it's the moment when a character realizes what they are doing is not helping them to get what they want and that they have to ask for forgiveness or they have to change something in themselves. They have to, once again, sacrifice something in order to get that greater thing that they desire. A couple of good examples of that are when Mel Gibson is uh, apologizing in What Women Want. And it's a, it's a beautiful apology. There's another really good one in You've Got Mail when Tom Hanks apologizes. What's interesting there though is he's apologizing for being two different people. And he's apologizing for being, you know, the guy who shut down her bookstore, but also for being the guy that she was in love with online and not letting her know that he was both guys. 
So he has a twofold apology. There's also an interesting one in Romancing the Stone, which is a, a fun romantic comedy that's also adventure. And so that moment of the apology is that moment when someone realizes they've got to change in order to get what they want. So there's still a little bit of selfishness in it, but if they do it well, if they do it with humility and integrity, it can work. How have romantic comedies evolved over the years? I mean, you know, we have Trainwreck, which, mm. I mean, and I don't even know if The Graduate's really a romantic comedy, but totally different films, you know, in terms of to the way that humor is approached. And so how, how over the years, over the decades, have romantic comedies changed, or maybe they haven't? What it looks like to me from having looked at romantic comedies from way back in the 30s on up to today is that like a lot of films, they used to be more clever in the dialogue. We had snappier dialogue. There were, it was a sharper sense of humor. There was intelligence and wit at play that I think we've lost some of and that's just a cultural shift. Um, people communicate differently now, uh, whether it's because of social media or you know, globalization. There's just not as much witty banter as there used to be in the romantic comedies. Also, you've seen a shifting in sexual attitudes and what's allowed. Remember that for a lot of the older films, they were being made under the Hayes Code, which was uh, a code imposed on Hollywood that you couldn't say certain things, you couldn't deal with certain topics, you couldn't have overt sexuality. So you get all these wonderful innuendos, right? And you get the wonderful, the look. Well, you don't have to see the people in bed together. You know that's where it's going, okay? So there's a lot of subtlety and really, really good writing in the older films because of those constraints. So now when anything goes, often I think people cut to the chase too soon and what we like is the chase. Otherwise, frankly, you're just watching porn. You know, you need the story for it to really be engaging on those emotional and mental levels. So how I've seen them change a lot is that what in, how I've seen them change a lot is in what you're actually gonna see on screen, as well as the dialogue and the interaction between the characters, either being more constrained and more difficult to get together or easier to get together. And then you sometimes, and unfortunately it doesn't work very well, you have to fabricate reasons for people to be in conflict. Curious about this Hayes Code, when did sort of those rules get lifted? <laughs> I do not know the answer to that. Oh, okay. I right. think it was in the early 60s. Okay. But that's something your writers should look up mm -hmm. because it was a very, very interesting time, what got imposed on writing and filmmaking and seeing how clever writers worked around it and still got to say what they wanted to say. But it used to be if... Uh, in uh, that era, if you committed adultery, you had to die. If you were the mistress, you had to die. 
if you were the person who did this, you had to die. And usually it was the blonde. Gosh. <laughs> because we were upholding, you know, the truth, the American way, the American family, and all this hypocrisy. But also, you know, codes of behavior. So very, very interesting time. And also look into the whole blacklist era as well. Right. They kind of went hand in hand. It's a, it's a really good look for writers to look back and see the constraints that are often placed on writers and how to get around it and still tell wonderful stories. Sure, I know the notorious Betty Page, they, they sort of touched on all that, but then the summer of love came. So mm -hmm. I don't know if that's like 68, but things definitely changed and then it was totally different. And you had, you know, where it was expected that people were swapping partners and things mm -hmm. like that. So it's, it's changed, whereas now it seems like it's more sort of online hookups. So you see how the culture changes how these people get together and it's interesting. Um, but you said something earlier about maybe it being raunchier now. Do you think we'll ever go back to another time where maybe people will be like, you know what, I'm too desensitized to all this? Because even driving around Los Angeles, you see billboards that you're like, wow, I'm just shocked that that would be out there. But it's part of the culture now. It's expected to see certain images. It is, and I think if we take a long view, we see that these sorts of things come and go. Everything is cyclic. Now, what I hope would not happen is that there is repression because down that road lies, well, repression and all the bad stuff that comes with that. But what I would rather see is a raising of sensibilities, like what you just said, you know, eh, it's too much of that. It's like, eh. Also, I think what you risk, and here again, raunchy is in style right now. It's sure. a fad. And so many of the stand-up comics and the comedies are raunchy comedies. What I think we lose, now not to be censoring any of that, but what I think we lose is the sense of romance again. And I, I hear a lot of, particularly younger people, saying they wish things were more romantic. They wish they had the situations that they have read about, that they've seen in the movies, but it's just not like that right now. So I think what you may be finding is people wanting more romance because it's exhilarating, it's thrilling. And unless you've got a bit of distance, unless you've got a bit of the hidden, unless you've got some of the unobtainable, you're not gonna have the striving and the yearning that is what makes romance. So going back to that article or that little post I saw in my hometown newspaper about, you know, I saw you when you were wearing this and you look like this and we shared a moment and please, and here's my number, area code 415, you know, that, that we, we've lost that. And for me, I'm still remembering who was that man? Who was that woman? Yes. What was it about her that was so, you know, but yes. now it would just be like, I mean, there's just, you could probably swipe <laughs> right or left on one of these social networks and Tinder, Grindr, whatever, and find mm -hmm. who that person is. But uh, I'm not sure really where I'm going with it. I guess it just, it seems like it'd be nice to go back to that. But mm -hmm. you're saying, so you hear from a lot of millennials that they kind of miss, like the notebook. And that was probably before most millennials were watching mm -hmm. films. I think that was what, 
early 2000s or something. I think so, yeah. Yeah, so, so it sounds like oh, right around that time things started to change. So now we get more very open um, sexual talk, but a lot of the human emotion in terms of the yearning is gone. I think it's important to keep in mind the various levels of our interactions with each other. And sex is easy. Sex is easy to get. Okay, not a problem. In our culture, anyway. Love, fortunately, is pretty well widespread, too. You've got familial love and friendship love and, you know, love of people who are involved in a similar cause. So love is pretty prevalent. But passion is rare and precious. And that's what romantic comedies, ideally, and the ones that end up being classics, are giving us. They're showing us passion. And you can't have passion without yearning. And you can't have yearning without a build-up. And you can't have a build-up without an ideal, something that to be yearning for, like that missed opportunity. So if you want to get the most out of that first kiss and the first boff or whatever, then you have to build up the energy. That's just physics. You have to build up the charge of energy. And then when those points come together, then you get the fireworks. And how does a writer build that up? That's, that's a great point. Well, it could even be as simple as a line that says, he walks towards her, she can see what's on his mind, and then he turns away. And then you go to her and she's going, but, but, and then you have another, so you almost get people to get, it's teasing, okay? It's foreplay, okay. if you will, mm -hmm. for the emotions, as well as, you know, eventually it'll seep over into the physicalities of the love. But it's, think of it as foreplay for the emotions. It's teasing. It's, oh, do they? Oh, I don't know. Oh, what about this? and almost getting there and then pulling away. So it's a real dance. It's a real dance. Like the crossing and the crosswalk. Like the crossing mm -hmm. and the crosswalk. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. But you have to build up the tension for there to be any charge. So when a screenwriter finally finishes their screenplay, and this could apply to romantic comedies or horror or whatever, what's the standard protocol of steps that they should go through after they finish it up? Well, as a consultant, I'm a bit uh, prejudiced, but I think they should seek professional opinion. And there are a number of really wonderful, well-experienced uh, story consultants that are available. And so get someone who's a professional to read your script and give you commentary on it. And often more than one person, because, you know, everybody's got their own opinion, even though they know about story. And of course, register it with the Writers Guild. Be sure you do that before it goes to you know, any potential buyers. And then start taking a look at the places to place your story. And for instance, the Great American Pitch Fest is a wonderful opportunity for writers. You go there, you uh, attend classes, uh, listen to panels on writing and selling. And then there's a whole day of live pitching opportunities where you can go in and pitch your romantic comedy script and hopefully find people who are interested in it. Uh, producers, production companies, development executives, agents, managers. There are a couple of live pitch fests. Great American Pitch Fest is the best one. It's fabulous. Then there are also virtual pitch fests. 
and there are listing places like Inktip is a good one. So you can write your synopsis and put your story up there, get it listed, and many, many, many producers and people looking for stories go to these places to find them. So put it out there, but now do this after you've consulted with somebody who is an expert on story and knows the business, and uh, try to go to some of the conferences. Some of them are happening online now, but try to attend some story conferences if you haven't already, and then write up your synopsis, your pitch, and uh, you can get help with that too on how to write good pitches and effective pitches, and then start putting it out there. It's easier now than it used to be. Why? Because there are so many new venues and there's so many production companies. And you can even do it yourself. You can, you know, make your own movie. A lot of people do for not much money at all. And then just put it up on YouTube or Vimeo. But I would say do get feedback, get professional feedback. Be sure you register it. And then look at the various outlets for exposing your script to people who are buying the virtual pitch fests, the listing services, and Great American Pitch Fest. And uh, see what kind of feedback you get. Make improvements if you think that they're good suggestions. If not, stick to what you've got. And persist, 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 persist. And I'll tell one little quick story about that. Um, back in 1977, one of my writing partners and I wrote a script. And we had it, and we were rewriting it, and we got feedback, and did this and that. And at one point, it was under consideration at MGM before a regime change, you know, and then everything goes away and everybody starts over. So we'd had this script for a long time. We entered it into a script contest a year or so ago, and it was one of the winners. And we got a trip to the Bahamas for a writer's retreat, and somebody said, wow, that's great. How long did it take you guys? We went, well, we started in 1977, so it took a long time. But you see, you just keep doing it and keep getting it out there, and you may well eventually have your dream come true. Curious, when you decided to submit for this this contest, um, how much did you change it for the time frame? Not at all, it, because it's an historical script anyway. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay, interesting. Yeah. Wow. It's set in Cuba. Cuba's opening up. We said, aha, now's the time. Let's pull that script back out and get it out there. So we entered a number of contests and, you know, placed here and placed there and got in this mention and that. So it got good feedback. It got good results. So, yeah. One persist, last. persist, persist. <laughs> One last question, though, and that is, um, what if someone says, you know, I've finished my script, I've shown it to someone in my family and then three of my college buddies and one of them is an English major and mm -hmm. I know they're going to give me the truth. Is mm -hmm. that enough? Because maybe they're not in the industry. No, um, it's good, but it's not enough. And specifically for the reason you just said, they're not in the industry. It's important to get non-industry feedback because that's your eventual audience is the people sitting in the theaters or the people tuning in on Netflix or watching your piece on Vimeo. So you want civilians to give you some feedback, but as far as uh, is your structure working? Are your characters well developed? Um, is your plot paced well enough? 
and what's the marketplace? You need to go to the professionals for that because it's a very crowded marketplace and you need professional help in order to know how to approach it.